Momentum. You are listening to CITR F102, Cape 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nerdwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have in the studio today? Who are you? Aaron Chapman. Who are you? <laughs> Aaron Chapman. Who are you? Aaron Chapman. A.O. Chapman. A.O. Chapman. That's right. That's what I used to write uh, Discorder articles under the name under. And we played your theme song. Explain. 
Every time I've been on your show, I think we've played uh, All the Time in the World by the Nipple Erectors, featuring Shane McGowan, his band before he was in the Pogues. And it's like a tradition that we start off with that. That so. is your theme song. That's my theme song. And you had a chance to ask Shane all about that tune. Well, I met, I met him at the Commodore, but uh, I didn't ask. The conversation was was brief. He he uh, he had had a few pops, and uh, you know he wasn't uh, uh, he wasn't a storyteller, but he was a nice guy. He was he was just he was more listening to what, what people were saying. But, I think uh, he was interviewed by his wife in a book, right? Yes, yeah. There's uh, that book, Drinking with Shane. Um, by Victoria Clark, and uh, it's a bit, uh, I don't know, it's not very good in my opinion, but uh, whatever. It, it, it's, uh, I think the book was partly a joke to begin with. but uh, Not as good as your book. Hey, now we're talking. Uh, what is your book? What ha- is the new book, and what books have you done? Well, I'll answer the second part first. This, the, the, I, I wrote a book called Live at the Commodore about the history of the Commodore Ballroom that came out um, in 2015, and... Um, or very end of 2014, I should say. Um, but uh, and and that was a that was a, a big one. And, and it, you know, not it, when you when you write a book, if it's a success, they let you do it again. It's like making a movie or something because you're kind of operating with not your own money. And sometimes, these but days. you started with filth. You I started, started with filth. You know me. I always will start with filth and uh, liquor, lust, and the law. That was the the first book I did in 2012, and that was about the history of the penthouse nightclub. In Vancouver, in BC. Vancouver, BC. Yeah, I, I, a little bit of Vancouver history all around. And but it, the new one now we've got to talk about the new one here now is uh, is called the Last Gang in Town, and it's a book about East Vancouver street gangs in the early 1970s and what the gang squad it, with the police department at the time did to uh, fight them. True story. A. O. Chapman, you have the best voice in radio. That's what you said in 1992. I had you on stage. You, you did. joined me on stage. At, at, I even wrote a song about you. <laughs> and you love gripping the mic that way. Oh, don't yes. Don't you? Sure. Can you explain, please, the best voice in radio and gripping the mic? Well, you've got to, you know, you've got to hold on to the thing you've, for, for your dear life when you're on stage sometimes. So uh, uh, in, my old, in my old band, I guess that's the way I used to grip it. But I, I didn't know I was doing anything uh, unique necessarily. And you yeah. have been in some rock and roll combos. I have been in some rock and roll combos. I, I played. I was an original member of the Real McKenzies uh, back in the nineties. Who uh, have a brand new book out there, as well. There is, yeah. Chris Walter did a book, uh, a really good book about the, the little bit of the history of the McKenzies. So it's kind of fun to, to, to uh, you know, be a writer and have somebody else, write, you know, write, you know. Uh, yeah, a story about you. you. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Are you in any books? Are you in that I, book? I'm in that book. Yeah. What uh, books are you in aside from the three books that you have written? That's a good question. I think I would be. I think I know. I'm in a um, a science fiction story called Space Station Five that was published in the late '70s, uh, where I, I appear as a kid uh, in the book. Um, How? Uh, Why? Was, this is amazing. This is amazing. Yeah, I, I should give you a copy of this. It, it Who was wrote it? My mother. My mother wrote in in the in the wake of the Star Wars craze that happened in the late nineteen in the nineteen seventies. She uh, published a book called uh, was called Space Station Five, and it's about these kids and their robots and they're on Jupiter and they do these things. But the 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 main character is a, is a you know a guy as a kid that looks like me. He's described looks like me, and and, and uh, his name is Aaron. And uh, she sent it to Walt Disney. Uh, uh, or somebody sent it to Disney, and she got a letter back from the Disney Corporation. I still have the, the letter. It's amazing. Was swastika letterhead? <laughs> <laughs> Baboom. No, it just had Mickey Mouse in the corner, and I don't think he had any swastika on him. 
to the best of my memory. It's been a while since I've looked at it. But when the letter came back, uh, uh, it, they, the, Disney, the Disney Corporation people said they were going to pass on making a movie of it uh, because they thought the story was too violent. And I thought, man, that's great. You know, like to be in a children's story and it's too violent for Disney. Now we're talking. And people can go to the Vancouver Library and actually get that out now? I don't know if it's still in the library. Uh, that, that's a good question because um, it's an old book and it would be out of print now. I have some copies at home because I found some in an old box. Um, but it was like it was a sort of a self-published uh, thing. She went on and did some other, other published books and some legal textbooks actually as well. But uh, uh, there was a writer, you know, I, I thought it was just natural to have a writer in, in every, every house uh, that everybody had. I lived next door to, to George Bowering. The Canadian poet growing up, and, I, and he was a writer, and there was a writer, you know, my mom was a writer, I just thought everybody had writers in their homes, but uh, uh, not all of us were so lucky, so. What about the treehouse? Did George Bowering have the treehouse? It wasn't his treehouse. It wasn't his treehouse. It was a house, it, uh, that was a house about, uh, let me see, down on uh, 37th and I want to say McDonald's, somewhere around there. But in, if you look in the 1992 uh, uh, series of uh, Discorder magazine, I published a story about uh, finding a, uh, a, a new, what, they, what the kids used to call a nudie mag or a girly mag, and I found it on the street. And, you know, like nowadays with, with Internet porn, I guess, this, is, it's, this sounds almost quaint to tell the story. We, we, but there was a certain Vancouverites, or people listening to this of a certain age will remember as a kid, somebody finding like a, you know, a Playboy or a penthouse or swank or one of these, you know, we, we or jugs or whatever the magazine, you know, they always said, Honcho. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a Mayfair, you know, like, and fi- it, it was in an alleyway or it was found on the, on the side of the Play road. Bore. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it was, it had been rained on inevitably and, or, or they would, a car had run over it. And if some kid found it, like news traveled fast around the neighborhood. Hey, man, Steve just found like you know, all ran over to check. You know, like he had uh, just robbed a bank and found out what he had. Um, and so I found one, and I and I uh, I, I thought Gee, I didn't know what to do with it. So I I threw it uh, as I was walking. As I picked it up, and maybe about 10, 20 feet later, I saw a treehouse up in there, and I threw it, and I and it went like like a basketball going through a net. You know, a hoop without not getting any net, just perfectly swish, swish, right through, and it went right in the in the window of the treehouse. And I thought, some whoever I don't know who who lived in that, whose kid, whose kid's treehouse it was, or who was in that, but man, oh man, that probably changed his life. And it makes me feel good to set a kid straight like that. Get in the bed, Neil Chapman. You have always told me that my Real Mackenzie's tour diaries should be called "Get in the Bed" because of the amount of filth. Uh, th- that are in the but it, what happened was is when I was in the McKenzie's I kept like a little sort of tour diary. You think, grew up with that band. I did, yeah, because I joined when I was twenty one. I think I just turned twenty one or twenty two. I suppose uh, no, yeah, twenty one, and uh, um, and I left probably when I was twenty seven or something like that. You know, uh, uh, so I, yeah, it was it was a heck of a way to sort of run away with the circus and grow up that way. You also encountered me, Nardwar. During my encounter with Duncan. Oh yes, yeah. You know somebody showed. That's when I got to know you, A.O. Yeah, that. The... I, I'm only guy that calls you A.O. Chapman. No, right? Grant Lawrence does as well. Anybody that remembers me from early 1990s at CITR calls me that because that's the way I used to write uh, 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 Discord articles and whatnot. But we went out to the ESP fair, and I know this is on one of your clips. It's on one of your maybe it's on your website. Um, it is actually unreleased. It's unreleased. Oh, well, now we should now all the more reason why we should leave, because we man we look like kids. I think then because this is over twenty years ago now. Um, 
but uh, this would have been that would have been like ninety one, I think, nineteen ninety ninety one. And I remember, you know, I was looking through. This is this is something that maybe you've forgotten. I was looking through an old uh, box of some clippings, and you and I went to the Music West Festival that year in ninety one, and you brought a demo, and you said that we were in a band called the Nomads. And you played the demo to a bunch of A&R people because they had these A&R listening sessions. And in reality, the demo was a, a B-side of a Nirvana record that nobody had heard that you had a copy of. And you played it. And, and our hope was is that these guys would say, listen, you know, your, your band sounds like you really need to get in a proper studio and record and you need to work on your songs and stuff like that, in which you could say, well, you guys don't know anything because this is Nirvana and this is just an unreleased Nirvana thing. But it backfired, and, and these guys were so excited about it, I thought they were going to open up a briefcase of cash and say, guys, what do you need to you know, be on our Atlantic Records or whatever like that? It was incredible. That was at Music West. Thank you for remembering that. you remember that. that? Yes, that was a Nirvana track, Beeswax, that was on the Kill Rockstars or Rockstars Kill compilation. That was it. And we, I remember like Andy Wallace totally dug it. He was, I think, the guy that produced the Peppers and Roses, etc. Yeah. He was like totally bobbing he, his head. He was, he was good. They, I thought it, it backfired us because we were hoping for a negative reaction, but these guys loved it. And I've never seen... Uh, you know, literally, there were. If they would have had a briefcase of cash, they would have opened it and just given it to us. And unfortunately, we had to say it was Nirvana. Yeah, and 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 they got it. They got the spirit up. And good on their credit that they were. You know, they they thought, oh, there's something here. You know, like we could, this could this could work, guys. You know, like so. Uh, you know, uh, there you go. Interesting, interesting times. Hugh Dillon, A.O. Chapman. Yeah, Hugh Dillon. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a distant cousin of mine. Nice, oh. nice guy too. Huh. A.O. Chalman licked the pole. Oh, now we're talking. You informed a lot of kids about Lick the Pole, and Lick the Pole informed a oh, lot sure of did. people about the I think we all learned something from Lick the Pole. For those of, of the uninitiated, Lick the Pole was a great Vancouver band in the 90s. I was not in that band. I, I, I was at many of the shows. I had friends in the band. Um, but uh, they were, I think the height of that band was when they were featured on the Fromage uh, 95 thing on Much Music where, you know, sort of the worst music videos the of the sock, year. And who actually called into the Nardwar the Human Survey oh, radio good. show a couple weeks ago. Oh, excellent. He's a good guy. Good sock, I should say. Lick the pole, and Rebecca is still out there. She's still out there. Supporting your book. She is, yeah. She's a big fan. And, um, uh, yeah, no, she's doing well. She's uh, involved in film these days with writing some scripts and things like this. A.O. Chaman, Red Hot Video. Oh, my God. How about that? You worked at Red Hot Video. In fact, a Red Hot Video that was firebombed by the Squamish Five. Yes and no. The one that was firebombed was the one up in North Van that's no longer, no longer there, or it's a restaurant in that space now. But in, let me see now, 1998, maybe 97 it would have been, um, I had... Uh, I had I, was looking for a, I needed a job in a hurry. I had had a little bit of money saved up, which dwindled away, and I thought, i got to get a job. I, I mean, I'll take a janitor position if I have to. And a friend of mine calls me up and says, hey, man, I'm going away for like three months. Why don't you take my job while I'm away, and that'll at least tide you over. And I thought, perfect. I, I'll talk to you later. I put the phone down, and then half an hour later, I thought, I thought Curtis like worked in like a bookstore or a video. What, what, what did, where does he work again? I, can't, I couldn't remember. I thought, I better call him back. I phoned him back, and I said, Curtis, Forgive me, like, where do you work again? He goes, oh, my God, you don't remember? And I said, no, I can't, I'm sorry. And he goes, I work at Red Hot Video. So I think, oh, my God, here we go. So I show up there for my first day, and 
the, the the other people there are like, why are you here? What they sort of, is Red Hot Video? It was for people uh, that don't well, know. It, we don't have them anymore, but uh, uh, <laughs> it was a uh, it was an adult video store. There used to be two kinds of video stores in Vancouver. There was the sort of the family blockbuster, you know. They kind always of thing. had a back room or the independent one, and you had to go through a. This sounds like something out of the, you know. There used to be an entrance for men and women in certain bars, you know, like. There in video stores, if anybody remembers those, there it was a sort of a curtained off, a separate section where you'd have to go in, and, uh, and you'd walk into this little sort of closet-sized space where the the cardboard boxes of these titles were on. Run. Well, the whole store was like this, and it was open twenty four hours. And I would do the midnight to eight a.m. shift. I would do the graveyard shift when pra- almost almost quite frankly nobody was in, but when the weird people would drift in, especially after the bars c- closed, it was a trip. And 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 I thought I thought. I, I, I stuck with it because I thought, this will be good. I'm going to get some stories out of this. So there'll be something. Within about two shifts of this, I realized, oh, man, this is depressing. You know, like, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not. But you were behind the counter. Yes. And you noted who bought from you. Oh, yeah. You are ready someday to name names. Name names, yeah. There, there were a number of uh, Vancouver sports celebrities and local actors and uh, people that would come in to uh, get a title. And what some <laughs> filth, some filth, dirty, dirty filth, and to make it filth for you, yeah, like it would have to be real filth it because that's your whole thing, <laughs> kind of like about filth, like it not enough filth, There's right? Not enough filth. Like, we need. What was uh, the idea behind not enough filth? <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I don't think it's ever been a philosophy of mine or anything. But whatever. when you read something, it's right. like not enough filth. There's not. You need some. You need some of that genuine grit. You know, our our world is a little too clean these days. We're a little bit more too concerned about safe places and make sure th- these things are safe. You know, it wasn't that long ago where it was a, a less safe and more gritty and filthier place. Vancouver used to be a filthier place. You know, I remember, you know, as a kid, you'd look over the, you know, the Granville Street Bridge or the Burrard Street Bridge and you'd see log booms down there. Now, if you told that to anybody who was under 25 today, they, they'd say, you need to go see a doctor or something. But, you know, Vancouver used to be a grittier place, and, and uh, the city used to – we came from a different area. It's changed, you know, just in really a couple of decades, very, very quick changes in Vancouver. And we're speaking to A.O. Chaman, Aaron Chaman, author of The Last Gang. In town. A brand-new book on – uh, Arsenal Pulp Press. Available at? All bookstores across the nation. Now, A.O. Chaman, Aaron Chaman, just a little bit of the introduction. Can we continue? Yeah. You and Jello by Afra. Yeah. Uh, with the story of uh, staying at his place? Oh, yeah. Well, I was on tour with No Means No uh, for a little bit in the late 1990s. Now, is that where you lost 10000 bucks in Green Bay? I didn't lose it. No, I didn't lose it myself, but... Uh, one of the band members had it in a bag and put it down next to a car that, well, the van to get into it and drove away. Or he had it on the roof and it slipped. We don't know. Or he had it in a... 10000 bucks a gig. Boy, that's a... That's a no, it, it, it had added up over a few shows. You know, it wasn't it wasn't solely a 10000 But, they, I mean, nobody's no did very so well. Somebody so somebody got 10000 bucks and, and a laptop that was in there. And yeah, that was a that was a grim uh, that was a grim night with no means no. But... There were a lot, mostly great times with No Means No, and, and I, I'm uh, I'm sorry to say those guys decided to finally uh, hang up the uh, the bass and drums and guitar and whatnot because they were uh, uh, they were always a treat, and I and I was very fortunate to be able to go see a No Means No every every night when I was uh, when I was working with. I did a little tour managing, selling shirts, uh, you know, for them at, during the shows, and uh, they were great fun uh, and and great guys, and I and still friends, you know, uh, 
great Did they people. blame anybody particularly for I think ten thousand bucks? I think the I think the the you know, I think the the well I'll say Rob Wright. You know, it, this Rob had the bag, and I and I'm not calling him up by saying that. I think he'd be the first person to say. Uh, you know, I just wasn't thinking. You know, it was a sad. Uh, now they made that money back. You know, they 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 tour, but it was a a, a grim night uh, that night. There was in not much Green fun in Green Bay. In Green Bay, I remember we drove from uh, from uh, Madison to Green Bay, uh, um, or or pardon me, after that we we headed on. You know, to the and that was a there wasn't much fun in the car uh, that night. I felt like oh geez, I really felt. Uh, Felt sorry for them, but uh, you did stay at Jello's house. Stayed at Jello's house, and I, I, I rescued his cat from running out the door. Um, Jello lives in this uh, grand, uh, beautiful house, designed in, by quote an architect on drugs unquote. It, yeah, because the, the 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 there's sort of the living room, and there's a rock wall, and, the sh- and there's a shower right behind, and it has sort of where no, the TV, it, and there's a little sort of porthole, you know, like. Uh, and it's a it's a beautiful house. It's a you know he he, he got it uh, you know many years ago, but a uh, uh, great place. But um, and I I remember John Wright, the drummer from No Means No, and I we were sleeping down in the we were stretched out in a couple sleeping bags, uh, camped out you know sleeping on Jello's floor. And it was like a crypt down there. It was so dark. Uh, it was one of the best nights of sleep I ever had. But we were up and about one day, and and uh, you know Jell's uh, had his cat. I'm not sure it's the same. Probably it's cat's been Mothra. This might have been the cat before. He had, I know, because this is going back. This is a, this would have been about uh, oh 1999, I suppose 2000, maybe this would have happened. But uh, so probably the cats maybe passed. He must have a new cat by now, unless unless the cat's you know still alive. It would be amazing. But uh, the cat was racing out the door, and uh, and to escape, and I, I grabbed it. He was he was uh, he was quite uh, grateful for that. Um, but he's a sweet guy. He's a nice guy. I like Jello a lot. You also, Ail Chaman, Aaron Chaman, stayed in a house, which I still tell the story yes. of you staying in this house. The other day, I told it to the plumber. To the plumber. Oh, you told me about this. What could I be alluding to? This was there a- are two incidents that you had. It is amazing. This was a part of, uh, this was a real McKenzie's tour. Uh, we were in Eugene, Oregon. And we were um, very often was the case that you know if you're a band on tour at that level, you have some people to show that uh, say, hey, you know, if you're looking for a place to stay, stay at our place, and that's a very generous offer. And most bands always treat it respectfully and whatnot. But if the if you re- if the, if you're brought back to a home and then you realize that there they, there's another agenda for these people there or there's something else going on, in which case they had brought us over there. Um, it wasn't an honest. Let me. I mean, I won't say the whole thing. It wasn't an honest situation, and I got sort of fed up uh, with with that. And I thought, if these people are trying to screw us around, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna fight back. And I went and got some cup of soup, um, you know, like a cup of soup packet that you get for, and you take the hot water. And I took apart the the shower, um, uh, the shower like a water pick, you know, showers. You know, when you get in the shower and you spray the. And I poured all this cup of soup stuff in the shower, and then uh, if you, we used to I, we used to have a situation where you if you take off the lid of the toilet tank, and the you cistern. and you cistern. the cistern if you will thank you for that, you take that off and you do your business in the tank, and close it then you know when you flush it doesn't get cleaner it gets dirtier, so I uh, and then and then we left you know like so so I imagine somebody the homeowner coming in the next day and having a shower and. Being, and then as soon as the turn the water on, the brown water coming out, and he thinks, what's wrong? And then he flushes the toilet, and it goes, you know. So I, I tried to put a little Koyaanisqatsi uh, life out of balance in, in that person's world for a little bit. We used to pull a lot of pranks 
on the road like that. We got up to a lot of misbehavior, and it was a very, as John Lennon used to say, a very satirical situation. Did you ever hear back from that house? You know what? I, I, saw, them, I saw those people again, and they said nothing of it. And I couldn't understand why they wouldn't, because it, they knew it had to be us. And you are Aaron Chapman. <laughs> and lastly here, Aaron yeah. Cham- Chapman, for intro, Harlan Ellison. Oh, my God. Harlan, you go through all these- I was checking, and you were actually on, I think, the Nardwar anniversary show, 11th year, the 20th year, and is coming up to the 30th year. Oh, my year. gosh. That interview will live on. What happened? You, Aaron Chapman, yes. author of The Last Gang. In town. On. Uh, on Arsenal Press. Out. Uh, across the nation. Now, available Available out, about now. We should, we should talk about the book. Out, than these old uh, stories. Oh, no, this is a building up. Okay, building we're building up. up. We're building up. up. I got Building you. up, yeah, building up, building up. Because people listening to this are going, what the, What are these guys on about? Bro? But this is your background. Yes, Harlan I understand. Harlan Ellison. His, well, this is what happened with Harlan Ellison. Now, for those of you who don't know, Harlan Ellison is a very well- How did well, you pitch it to me? I said- The I, guy from- This is the guy- from uh, he's a science fiction writer, but he he did these car ads for a old Toyota or a car. No, what got me was he was. Uh, but hold on a second. I said he wrote the episode of Star Trek with Joan Collins. That's all we had. That Spock wears a toque. The, the, yeah. That sealed yeah, the deal for me. A wool hat. Because I was saying you should interview him because he was available. I think it's at the CIT or on the wall or something like this. They said he's available to do an interview. And I said, Nard, we got to interview him. So we did. Now we had, you did it. I, I, we both did it. Now I, I. That's not. Let's be fair here, because he probably thought we were being good cop and bad cop with him. Because what happened was when we finally interviewed him, Harlan is a guy obviously who is surrounded by enough sycophants that he's not used to having people interview him that doesn't know every detail of his life. And there are many details of his life we didn't know. In fact, mostly all we knew about him is that he had written the Star Trek episode with, uh, with Joan Collins in it. And you happen to ask uh, him if he had ever got a chance to lick uh, Joan Collins as a joke. And he, he didn't take that well at all. And then you dropped. And I, I, I was trying to keep things moving and whatnot. But then you happen to drop, uh, and this was, this was a, an unfortunate thing, that, that uh, uh, Rick Griffin, the old Grateful Dead artist, had passed on. And he didn't know about it. And I guess he was a friend of, of Griffin's. And he said, I, I, I need some time. Guys, can, can we? It was a, such a shock to him. He said, can you phone back in 10 minutes or something? So we did that. And then we just tried to pick up the same line of questioning. And we were trying to have fun with the interview. We were asking some silly questions. And then he, he, he got upset and said, oh, this is pointless. And he, and he got angry and he hung up on us. So when then Ellison, this was all an aid a pro, promo for when Ellison came to town to do some talk about his books or at some writers. might have been the Writers Festival for all, all I remember. And he singles us out he, he, at that talk. Uh, and went on. He calls on. me the little guy. Yeah, and that little guy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and he was very mad at the thing. And he and he ha- and that that the Georgia Strait happened to reprint that excerpt of the thing. And I wrote into the Strait uh, with an angry letter, trying to set them straight, if you will. And uh, then I got an angry letter from the person at the Strait. I still have that letter somewhere. I should dig it out see because I probably have drinks with that person now. But uh, I, 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 you know. Anyway, Harlan was a, was a, is on his is on his pedestal somewhere, and he's probably long forgotten about it. And good luck to you, Harlan, wherever you are. And you are Aaron Shaman, author of The Last Gang in Town. You also authored a book on the Penthouse Cabaret. Yes, Liquor, the, Lust, and the Law. The called. legendary 
Penthouse right. Cabaret, Strip Club. Could that's, you call it a strip club? That's what it is now. Yeah, it didn't start that way, but that's what it is now, yeah. You also authored a book about the Commodore Ballroom. That's right, Live but, at the Commodore. Is it true that the Clash demanded lights so BC Hydro helped them out? What happened was is they showed up with a, with a touring lighting package. These were lights they brought to every show. And at the Commodore, it's not like it is now. In 1979, the Commodore didn't have the same system and same, uh, same power and, and same technical capacity. Even in the years prior when, like, Doug and the Slugs had played, sometimes the power went out at the Commodore because it, so, it was so iffy. So when these... When the class showed up with all these lights, they couldn't uh, they couldn't run them all, and they said, you know, we're, 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 we can't do this. And, then, and the, I think the band, you know, probably Johnny Green, insisted, listen, mate, we got to get these lights going. And uh, Drew Burns, the old proprietor of the Commodore, who I guess he knew some BC Hydro people or something, and he maybe said, hey, guys, come down. I'll throw a case of beer in the back of the truck for you. And these guys came down. They did a power tap from the telephone lines, you know, the power lines outside the back alley and drew a straight, like, stovepipe plug. Into the Commodore, so they could get they could draw enough lights to do the. If now, if you were to do this today, I work a little bit of concert production these days. If you were to do that today, I, it would cost you maybe fifteen thousand dollars to get a guy to come down day of to pull it. These guys did it for a case of beer back then, but that's what that's the way Vancouver used to be like. You could make those kind of deals on the back of a uh, match cover. But the Clash weren't too punk in wanting the lights, were they? Well, I think they I think they traveled with a certain show that they wanted at least. Uh, you know, give people their money's worth or, or not, you know, be able to be seen. I get it. You know, like, uh, uh, you know, they were still very much a punk rock band at the time there. And, and, and by all accounts, that was a really great show. But, uh, you know, I guess they, they were probably playing when they were playing across North America. That was the, that was the kickoff of their first uh, North American tour, that uh, show at the Commodore in, in January 1979. And uh, when they did that, they probably, you know, they probably thought for the tour, we're going to be playing some rooms that maybe aren't so ready for us and stuff like that. Let's, let's bring some lights and stuff like this. And, and uh, uh, you know, as I say, the Commodore is not, you know, uh, back then wasn't like it is today where, where you have all that, uh, enough power to run that stuff. And when tours come in and they run like a, they put like a video wall, uh, you know, at the back of the stage and stuff like that. Or, you know, just enough room for, um, you know, uh, you know, Jay Macy's amps that Henry Rollins is going to uh, hand, you know, stand behind and whatnot. Uh, you need that, you need that juice. You need that power. And we are speaking to Aaron Chaman, A.O. Chaman, the last gang in, in town. town. And actually, before we get into the interview, I thought we would play a couple tunes that you handpicked, including the Vancouver Polka Pals. Oh, man, so good. I love What these can guys. you say about the Vancouver Polka Pals? Well, they remind me of the evaporators, the way they dress. This ba boom. You know what I mean? You got it. And... Uh, you know the record that uh, that uh, you, I mean, you should tweet a picture of that record out or something like that. Because well, we did. There's a picture of us that, of us holding it up there. Actually, we just did. But uh, it's great. And, and uh, I don't know if these guys are are, are still alive. I'd be curious if anybody uh, knows the Vancouver Polka Pals uh, because the record that we have in our possession. What year is that? Uh, I would say it's late '60s. Uh, probably about '75. Oh, is it '70s? Is it late? Is it later? Yeah, maybe it's later. Um, uh- you know, like uh, in, in that, in that oh, nineteen sixty-seven. Sixty. That's what I thought. Yeah, I see, later sixties. So, if any of those guys are still alive, John uh, Kachuk, Ed. Uh, let me see what's his Ed Pasek, Steve Sedmak, Mike Storienko, or George Zotek. 
uh, from the Vancouver Polka Pals. I'd love to I'd love to hear from you. A danceable music, and we are going to play the rock track. Yeah. It's called Rock. I think it is Guitar Boogie or one of the tracks there, rock track. But you had picked a track out that was kind of like related to the book, Last oh, Gang in Town. Oh, yes, yes. We're, uh, 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 Indiana Wants Me, which is in the book there, which was a favorite uh, at Ben's Cafe. Uh, oh, we've got to queue it up here. Yeah. At uh, Ben's Cafe. Now, where the Rio Theater is now, over on Broadway and commercial over there, um, there's a uh, next door to the Rio, there was a place in the early 1970s called Ben's Cafe, and there was a jukebox there. And this, if you went in there, you might have uh, seen uh, some of the old Clark Park gang sitting down uh, in one of the booths there or hanging out. But if you went over to the, uh, the uh, jukebox, you might have heard this song. Now, I was curious because we did get a Twitter question from at Slipnaughty by Nature. And they said, I remember when in high school people said the Riley Park game yes. would throw gasoline on people and then chuck matches at them. What is the Riley Park Gang? What is the Clark Park Gang? Before we play this tune. Sure. Well, if, if there was a certain era of, uh, of Vancouver youth gangs in the 1960s and early 70s where a lot of the street gangs and youth gangs were associated with uh, geographically to a city park or the neighborhood they were into because sometimes the gangs, the kids in the gangs hung out in the park because it was safer to hang out with their friends at the park than sometimes go home at night when mom and dad were arguing, or some of these some of these kids grew up in some pretty tough homes, so the Riley Park Gang, the Clark Park Gang, even the even the Dunbar Park Gang were all these names that uh, you know if you're Vancouverite of a certain age, you'll remember growing up with. Um, the air, that era kind of fizzled out and burned off, and you know, you know by the early '80s when the Hell's Angels show up, and and uh, nowadays with these groups like the Red Scorpions or the Independent Soldiers or United Nations Gang and stuff like that, it's 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 all changed. These guys were sort of the last of the dinosaurs before uh, the comet hit, you know, and whatnot. As I as I as I say, so. But back then, it was a what back when the as I say when the city was a little more rough and tumble, a little grittier, um, and uh, these were some of the uh, some of the problems that the police were dealing with in terms of youth gangs at the time. That were gangs that you know nowadays gangs aren't necessarily in Vancouver. They're out in Abbotsford. They're out in Surrey. They tend to be something in the suburbs. Very little seemingly gang activity that we, that we deal with, but. Back then, in the early 70s, they were right there on the street, and they were right around. So, What about this part of it? Would throw gasoline on people oh, and then yes. chuck matches on them. The Riley Park gang was involved in an, uh, an incident where uh, they threw some uh, gas or lighter fluid on somebody. It was somebody that they had uh, involved in an assault. And uh, uh, I know other, uh, there's a Facebook page um, for the last gang in town that you can look up, and I've uh, reprinted that article by Bob Sarti um, that he writes about that incident. Uh, that was specific to the uh, sp- that was specific to the Rally Park gang. And right now we have all queued up. Oh, Indiana wants me. We're going to play right now. It's brought to you by the last gang in town. Aaron Chap Man.
the Vancouver Polka Pals on the Nardwar. The Human Serviette Show. With? Aaron Chapman. And before that, Aaron, what did we hear? A.O. Chapman. Oh, what did uh, we hear? Uh, Indiana Wants Me, which was the... Uh, uh, oh, I'm going to make sure. Yeah, Indiana Wants Me, which is uh, which was a favorite on uh, at the Ben's Cafe Jukebox way back when. I think it's still playing. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Sorry. Oh, you it got was, the you got you got it, the record playing in the it back. It's a polka pals. There we go. The polka. You can't have the, the polka pals demand to be played more. That's what they're we doing. We heard the Vancouver polka pals with guitar boogie, and before that, again, live from beside the reel, it was right. Uh, yes, uh, at Ben's Cafe. The, the uh, from the, straight from the jukebox there. What is there now? It's uh, I think it's a labor office, or it's the old Bank of Montreal there that's uh, next to the Rio. So, so it is still there. No, the cafe's long gone. They but the building <laughs> is still there. No, torn down. Okay, like so much of Vancouver. What did you learn, Aaron Chapman, about crime reporting? Oh wow! In this new book, the, the well, Clark it's, Park. You gang. know, it's interesting when I think of crime reporters. I think of George Garrett, uh, the old uh, CKNW reporter. In fact, I was just at his 82, uh, 82nd birthday. Uh, lunch uh, with Joseph Planta and, uh, and George Orr, and uh, uh, you know, uh, Garrett was a was a very well known, excuse me, crime reporter in Vancouver, you know, for years and years and years, and and uh, was one of those people that uh, the police trusted, or if, or if he found something out, and they say they would tell him, George, can you sit on this for a couple of days because we're just rip, you know finishing the investigation, he would, so they trust him, so sometimes they would give him a lead on something. Or when they were trying to get you know something information out there, or a proper leak, he would pick it up. So he was one of these interested sort of trusted reporters, and uh, and I talked to him in the in the book in the context of some of the old police chiefs that were around in the 1970s that sanctioned the H Squad, which were sent to go after the Clark Park gang. Did you have a bit of experience, i.e., the penthouse and the last gang in town, like dealing with these characters? I, I suppose so. I mean, they're, they're, it's very because tr- the book was quite fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's less. Uh, I mean, like, we get into a little bit of the era in the 1980s when the when the Hell's Angels were going on. So, I, and there's a there's a, a a police officer that died at the Commodore um, in the 1950s. He just uh, had a heart attack and died at a, at, a, at a dinner that he was at. Um, but there was an incident that was publicized in the, in the paper and whatnot. But, um, yeah, so I, the police seem to show up in all three of my books, actually, and as do some, some criminals from time to time. But the, um, it's interesting because, uh, yeah, I was able to, uh, when I got into the story of the Penthouse nightclub, you know, that place was uh, set upon by the Vice Squad in the 1970s, in the mid-1970s. And um, when I wrote that book, I made some connections with some of the guys, retired police department constables. And... Uh, that probably served me well later on because I was, I think they the, they largely thought the book was fair. So when I went back and was getting into more sort of this, uh, a little bit of arcane police history of the early 1970s and was contacting some of these guys, they were able to put me in touch with a few people and, and say, uh, uh, make introductions, which were very helpful. So uh, sometimes one thing leads to another unexpectedly. Had anybody else asked them before, were you pioneering new ground? This is new ground. All, all a lot of this uh, this story that's in the last gang in town about uh, about some of the East Vancouver street gangs in the 1970s and what the police did to uh, go after them has never been uh, you know fully uh, published before. So the book has all sorts of uh, never before published pictures and documents and police surveillance reports and a number of different materials, as well as stuff 
and information and photos from the gang members themselves and some of the old gang members that, that talk about what happened for the very first time. So this isn't necessarily history, the real story of what happened. You can't Google it. You cannot Google You will now, now that the book's out. But this, isn't, you know, this wasn't research that necessarily you would be able to find on Google. It, this was all uh, st- you know, research and, uh, and information that's, that's, that's very fresh and, and been, been published for the first time, I should say. Did Bob Guccione ever go to the penthouse? I was curious. You know what? I don't think he ever did. You know, I, 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 the, the, that was, you know, the height of the Penthouse magazine in the 1970s and 80s. You know, the, I always sort of wondered if there was some association. I, and I'm sure the Filipponi family down there heard that all the time. But uh, no, no, it was two different things. Is there anything that would go into the second edition of the Commodore or Penthouse book that you didn't put into first edition? Oh, I might add a bit more. You know, uh, the, the, the nice thing is when the book came out, of course, you hear a bunch more stories. And you hear a bunch more, uh, you know, you hear from people who send you an email and say, man, I've got these old photos of the Commodore and, you know, 1961. I wish I would have known you were doing the book. I would have sent them to, you know, things like that and, 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 and a bit of extra information. Um, but by and large, I, I, you know, I'm pretty happy with what we've got in there. I might have put one extra story about uh, that, you know, the, 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 the Commodore is one of those places that everybody's played. In fact, it's easier to name some of the bands that haven't played the Commodore than the ones that, that, that have. And Bob Marley... Uh, never played the Commodore. The one time he, I think he came out to Vancouver, he played the Queen Elizabeth Theater. But he did go to the Commodore after the, the show at the Queenie. And I heard from somebody who was there who brought him over and introduced him to Drew, the old proprietor of the Commodore. And it was noisy there, and Drew sort of misheard when he was introduced to, to Bob. Uh, he said, oh, and, you know, this is a rising uh, reggae uh, performer. And Drew happened to say, oh, I'd, I'd love to get Bob Marley in here to the, to the Commodore. And and, and uh, they were in Drew's office, and uh, uh, and and Bob said to Drew, "I said, well, I, you know, I can I can get a hold of him for you if you like," and and he said, "Gee, that'd be great, you know." Like so, he Drew, Bob Marty grabbed, just picked up the phone off of Drew's desk, and uh, and handed it to him, uh, and and you know, Drew thought that was weird, and and put the phone to his ear, and then Bob just started talking to him, like. <laughs> <laughs> and and then he you know the penny dropped and he and he realized like oh I'm sorry you're hi please you know forgive me and they had a good laugh about that that would have been you know there's a, there's a few little who extra told stories you that what's that who told you that uh, who told me that I haven't no I have an email from somebody at home um, that that somebody sent me that story could any of these books be done in the age of non internet Jeez, I, you, you know the internet's helpful for some research and it's great for tracking down some photos I mean it's nice that uh, you know, there, there are things like uh, the, the uh, City of Vancouver archives, and they are uh, each year um, scanning more and more of their photos that, you know, I, I'm one of those guys that does go down to those card catalogs and does go through those file cabinets and will go through the actual, uh, you know, archive material. But nowadays you can do so much, you can do a lot of it online. You can find some of those photos, and they're high-resolution scans, and that's great. In fact, I think the City of Vancouver archives just surpassed their 100,000th uh, image that's on their database now. It's amazing to pour through. Available at? Available at uh, just uh, Google City of Vancouver Archives. You can find their page and, and, and just you know, endless amount, amount of images. You can, and it's amazing stuff there. Um, but uh, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of material and a lot of stories that are part of Vancouver history that uh, there's, not, there's no information on. And you have to sometimes find these people. And you've got to find the living people who were there for it to tell you really what they saw and what, what happened. Aaron, author of The Last Gang in Town, the statue of limitations is it over? Why did these gang members talk? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I what happened was I did a 
I did an article for the Vancouver Courier about the history of gangs in Vancouver that came out in about 2010, uh, 2011, actually. And uh, it was an interesting time because, uh, you know, there was a lot of shootings that were happening in, in uh, Vancouver. People might remember they were happening right in town or at a shopping mall and things like this and, and some of these new gangs that were around. And there was, for the first time again in Vancouver, uh, somewhat of a fear of, of, of gang crime in the city. It's kind of gone now. It's uh, As we say, we hear about these incidents in Abbotsford and Surrey and things like this. Mind you, there was just a, something that happened in East Van uh, last night. So it's still not completely changed. But there, you know, there's, it's a different era and it's a different time now in Vancouver. Um, when that article came out, I had one of the old Clark Park gang members drop a line to me uh, saying that he enjoyed the article. And he said, oh, I can tell you some more stories about the life back then and what East Van was like. And, uh, and meeting him and then meeting some of the other friends of his that are uh, still alive. You know, there's a lot of people from that era who are uh, dead or overdosed or in jail or died in a car accident or stuff like this. So the the six or seven uh, Clark Parkers that I spotlight in the book are no means by no means all of them, but uh, the, the guys that are still, still still alive to, to tell their stories. How many years before they will talk? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, they're, 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 some of them are uh, very open and honest. And it's a different time of their lives. Um, there are other ones that uh, still maintain some friendships, you know, in East Vancouver with uh, uh, some of the people they grew up in the neighborhood with. So they're not going to rat on anybody, and they're, they're not going to. Uh, some of these guys are friends with some of the, uh, you know, bikers in town and things like this. So they 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 maintain those friendships. And if there's a there's a story that, uh, you know, probably they feel they want to keep to themselves they still do but uh they they were very open and honest to talk about uh what life in east van was like and growing up back then you know these days you know east van is not much different than caresdale in a way you got million dollar homes in east van just like you do in caresdale so the, the east van this this sort of idea of a tough east van working class honest image i mean there are dentists and university professors and website designers that live in East Van now. It's no longer specifically the area town where dock workers or sheet metal workers or sanitation workers uh, are going to be, you know, living and working in their homes. You know, like so, the city's changed quite a bit since since that time, and and that that's sort of part of what uh, I get into with the book. Aaron Chaman, author of The Last Gang in Town. Did they, did they, the gang members of the Clark Park gang, confess to anything that they didn't do? How did you know that they didn't do it? Did they confess to something that they, uh, uh, that was that somebody else was responsible for, you mean? I don't think, they're, they're not the kind of people that would do that, um, quite frankly. They're, uh, you know, now, they're, a lot of these... Most of the people that I'm because Ronnie Hawkins never let the truth right. get in the way of, of a, a good, good, oh, of a good story. story. I see what you're saying. Yes, uh, you know, they're, they're, everybody you know uh, probably uh, uh, elaborates a little bit and whatnot. But you know, these guys had some really wild and and crazy and insane uh, lives. Many of them had been in juvenile detention, maybe you know, fifteen, twenty times between the ages of twelve and eighteen. They and liked it there, though. Some of them did, you know. Some of them didn't. I don't think. Homo but, milk. And uh, yeah, and uh, Montanized milk. Yeah, yeah. Well, you get a good meal there at least, you know. Like, uh, but uh, you know, a lot of them had some pretty rough, uh, rough childhoods, and uh, you know, parents that were heavy drinkers or or, or people that, uh, um, you know, it was a tougher uh, a tougher go of things and 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 whatnot, um, and uh, so that 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 contributed a lot. But they're they're honest people, and they're. Uh, you know, they're hardworking people. A lot of them, as I say, have turned their lives around and are no longer a part of 
any criminal. I mean, it's long gone for, for, for what, uh, you know, sometimes they, they did go on to uh, serve some prison time in, in some cases. Not all of them did, but, but quite a few. And uh, after a few, years, a few years of that, they seem to have uh, gotten out of that lifestyle. And it's a credit to them, you know, per- perhaps there's a reason why, you know, the, the, the six uh, or seven Clark Parkers I spotlight in the book are, are, uh, uh, are, are here, to, here today because they're sort of the smartest of the lot because they at some point said, I got to do something different or I got to change what I'm doing a little differently to, because I'm, I'm headed down a, a dangerous path, you know, like, uh, so it's interesting. It's interesting to hear the story. What made you pick the name Paul Stanton? Because uh, you changed the name. Uh, yeah, that's uh, they're referring to one of the uh, H Squad police officers that were on the gang squad at the time. What made you pick the name Paul Stanton? I picked the name uh, Stanton because in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, um, the their Clint Eastwood is he just knows the grave uh, is uh, where the money is hidden is at a gravestone that says Arch Stanton. So I use the last name Stanton from the good, the bad. It's a good question. No one's ever asked me this, and this is the, I'm telling you the true answer. I, I never thought I'd actually have to uh, 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 reply. And Paul, I just thought uh, I, I picked it out of the air, I think, um, because it uh, it has the same number of letters uh, as the um, as the real person uh, who who did it. But uh, yeah, uh, Paul Stanton is one of the police officers in the in the book. And you are Aaron Shaman, author of The Last Gang in Town. The Biltmore. What is the significance of the Biltmore Cabaret? Well, you know, the Biltmore is one of those few places that are probably around uh, in Vancouver since those old, well, those old days. Nowadays, you know, the Biltmore does everything from karaoke to DJs and bands and stuff like that. But back in the nineteen seventies, it was a it was a tough place. There were there were many nights. It was it was just like a little sort of beer you know uh, beer hall in there. There's no live music. And uh, it was a rough place, and there were a lot of bikers that went there. I've talked to many uh, old gang members and many police that uh, would talk about some of the Donnybrook fights that you know were twenty-five people duking it out all at once in the bar and whatnot. So it was a rough, uh, it was a rough spot. We had the uh, we had the the last gang in town book launch at the Biltmore, uh, which uh, seemed to make sense because it was an old uh, an old haunt. It was kind of funny to bring all those the, some of those people back from that that era to the bar, but also. It's uh, it, it the Biltmore actually appears in the book because it's uh, at at uh, the the latter portion of the story, and I won't spoil it or anything like that. Where a number of uh, Clark Park uh, gang members uh, go to uh, see if they can fence a tele a stolen television set, um, and when they leave the bar and return back to a stolen car that happened and, and police set upon them, well, something happens from there. So, did the Clark Parkers invent grunge with the Mac jackets? This is a great this is a great uh, uh, angle on this now. I know uh, Stephen Hamm, um, who, you know, when he was in Slow, talked about when Slow went down to Seattle. They, you know, uh, Seattle at the time, the bands were dressing very glam uh, and whatnot. Uh, but at that point, you know, they're, they're, those guys were getting their clothing bought by their moms and stuff like that. It would just get them, you know, checkered shirts and, and plaid shirts and stuff like that. And they would just go down and play in that clothing, you know, the clothing they were wearing, you know, on their back when they loaded in whatnot. They didn't show up and change into a costume or, or change into, you know, looking like Gary Glitter or something, whatever, Mark Boland or something. They, so they would go down and, and, uh, and just wear that. And apparently, you know, uh, I know Ham feels that in a big way changed the, uh, and, and sowed, you know, sowed the seeds of uh, grunge clothing that, because 
when they came back again not at, not long after and all the bands were wearing plaid shirts and stuff like that. So now it's interesting, you know, you see the red Mac jacket that was so often uh, the uh, the jacket of choice of some of the Clark Park gang and stuff like that. You know, DOA adopts the red Mac jacket, you know. Uh, th- that was a real sort of symbol of working class uh, East Vancouver uh, back then. So it's interesting to maybe suggest that uh, that some of that some of that East Van plaid uh, later contributed to uh, to what happened with the the grunge fashion scene. I love the way that you fit in DOA into every book you write. <laughs> I love that they are not in the index, but you still fit them in. <laughs> oh, well, the index we had to do we had to do uh, pretty pretty quickly, so we didn't. Uh, not everybody's. Uh, there's a lot of people mentioned that aren't in the index. Actually, we, we were trying to wanted to get the highlights in there, but we were we were rushed to uh, to get it to the printers because uh, we were at the eleventh hour uh, and we needed to get the book out to stores. So that maybe that's why the in, they're not in the index. My apologies if they're on. But you know what, Nard, I was just at the uh, induction of Joe Keithley into the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame. Now Joe has his very own uh, star right on Granville Street, where people will walk all over him. Uh, there, as opposed to uh, what they've done in his career over the years. And you did a little speech. I did. I said a few words because I was one of the petitioners to uh, to urge uh, to get uh, Joe, the first punk rocker, into the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame, and he's the he's, he stands there now. So, uh, but in your book, the last gang in town by uh, Aaron Chapman on uh, Arsenal Press out across the nation now now on page fifty nine quote. Punk gangs take over English Bay. Yes. Punk before DOA. Punk before DOA. This, of course, uh, you know, that that word punk, but this is before when, when punk wasn't about punk music or punk rock or anything like that. This was the usage of the word punk when... Uh, uh, at a different at a different time, back when funk meant stink, to uh, quote Scott Henderson, uh, <laughs> and whatnot, and uh, but that was yeah there was a, in, at English English Bay in the 1970s there was uh, the Sea Festival riots, and these were uh, uh, attended uh, not only by the police riot squad at the time because they needed to be there because of incidents by not only members of the Clark Park Gang but other people that were just sort of set upon these outdoor festivals and used to cause a lot of pr- a lot of trouble in, in Vancouver. We love rioting in Vancouver. Most people think just like the, the Stanley Cup riots. We've had a lot of different riots over the years in Vancouver. And the interesting thing is the riots only take place during the parts of the year where there's great weather. There's very few riots in, in December or November or anything like that or January. But when we ch- get a chance to go out as Vancouverites and we get up a chance to breathe that fresh air in, we're either doing the grouse grind or we're rioting. I have a question on Twitter, and again, you're hearing Aaron Chapman, author of The Last Gang in Town. And if you want to call in, it is 604-822-2487 or 604-822-CITR, and you will be rewarded with an actual present for phoning in and asking a question. But generally, I have a question. Twitter question, Twitter question. A Twitter question from at Agent 100. Is there a playlist Aaron could make for Mixcloud or Spotify to go with the book? I guess it would be like Bad Company, BTO, Nazareth. <laughs> what did the Clark Parkers listen to? Because you mentioned the Stooges. What did they yeah. listen to? Well, uh, you know... Th- th- it's that's an interesting question. I should probably do something like that because, you know, the real coming out party in in Vancouver for the 
uh, Clark Park gang was at the Rolling Stones concert at the Pacific Coliseum in June 1972. And um, at the time, you could uh, you know go see the Stones for about six bucks, I think. And uh, it was a uh, it was at that concert there was uh, a riot that took place outside of the arena while everybody else was in seeing the show. There was a, a, a huge incident with a number of police that were injured and, a, and a, several, a couple thousand people out front on the concourse that were throwing rocks and all manner of stuff uh, at, at the cops. And as I say, a number of police, number of police injured. That was a very, uh, it would hit all the papers and whatnot, and the, and the police decided uh, their intel had suggested that the Clark Park gang were responsible for this riot, so they decided to form a secret gang task force to go after the gang, which they called the H-Squad, the Heavy Squad. And uh, there were about 11, 12 uh, plainclothes officers, some of the bigger guys on the, on the force, to basically aggressively go after the gang. And th- this story, and I speak to some of the members of the H-Squad as well as some of the members of the Clark Park gang who faced off with them. And this, this is, as I say, the first time this has ever been, the story's ever been told. The Heavy Squad, you never said that. Yeah, it's in the book. Yeah, the oh, H- you did. Yeah, H Squad, a Heavy Squad. Yeah. I thought it was a Heroin Squad. Oh no, no, it was the it was the Heavy Squad. Yeah, or the H Squad. Yeah. There are lots of picks. I, I, what would they listen to? Sorry, the Rolling oh, Stones. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh geez, any any number of uh, uh, the Stooges. Uh, yeah, and but they were also sort of fans of sort of classic rock and roll. Chuck Berry, you know, Bo Diddley. Like what uh, we played. Yeah, you know, like uh, so. It's uh, they 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 liked uh, you know good rock and roll music basically. Uh, yeah. The Vancouver Archives have a weird photo credit system, don't they? In the book, it's a weird photo credit. Oh, the CVA dash the number. Yeah, well, that's the City of Vancouver Archives dash, and then their number or whatnot. So yeah, it's just pretty weird, though, isn't it? Isn't I think the City it's, of uh, Vancouver Archives enough. Like, I, why do you have to put the actual number? Oh well, because uh, you know, there's I I try and make these books uh, stand up uh, for peer review and and source material. You want to give photo credit to uh, if people. are are then looking for that photo again, or somebody's reading the book, are curious to find that photo for themselves. You should put the you know the source number and what your uh, where the the proper photo credit, or or if you know who the photographer was who, who did it, so so people can find the stuff for themselves if they're going to do their own research. How much does it cost to get a Herzog, a Fred Herzog photo in your book? That's a good question. I contacted the uh, Equinox Gallery, who are the folks that uh, manage the Herzog uh, portfolio. And because there was a number of different photos, um, there's a great photo you're probably familiar with, or many readers, listeners probably know Herzog's work. There's a great photo of a, a it's called, I think it's called Blue Car, and it's uh, this abandoned uh, 1950s car in the middle of some vacant lot in Strathcona that looks like it's, it looks like it could be Detroit, you know, in the 1970s or something. And I thought, oh, this would be a wonderful image to show, you know, what the look of East Vancouver, what certain parts of East Vancouver looked like back then. So I contacted the gallery and I, I and I, uh, I asked them about it, and they said, well, what's it for? And I, I pitched them the the the, the book, and uh, uh, they uh, they really liked the idea, and they were supportive of local history and whatnot. So they were gonna, they offered me the the photos for free. The only reason there's only the one photo of the uh, uh, of the black and white photo by Herzog that's in there is because the nature of the book changed from a color thing to just black and white, and some of those original uh, Herzog photos, which are color, are start to be seen in color. So I thought we don't want to give people half measures and uh, and show a black and white version of a color photograph of Herzog's. It should be in color. So we used the one black and white photo of Herzog's in there, and, I, and I'm grateful to uh, the Equinox Gallery and Fred Herzog for letting me use it. I love that the last gang in town has surveillance pics. Yes. 
what can you explain about that? Like the MC5 were videotaped, surveillanced, you know, by yeah. the CIA playing the Democratic Convention, you know, et cetera. <laughs> you had the same thing for Vancouver's BN. It was amazing. Yeah, well, some of these photos are taken by the Vancouver Police Department, and these photos end up at the Vancouver Police Museum down on Cordova Street. If you've never been down there, I, I would suggest to all Vancouverites to go down and pay to visit. It's one of the most unique museums in the province, I think. But it's a great uh, also resource because on file there, aside from the exhibits they have that you can look at, they have some 9,000 photographs, I think, are in their collection of, uh, of policing over the years and police history, you know, going back to, uh, you know, over 100 years uh, within the city, or more than that. Um, and they have a number of interesting photographs from uh, that would have been taken by plainclothes surveillance people that went to the BNs to take pictures of some of the known drug dealers that mixed themselves in with some of the BNs and whatnot or known criminal factions that would show up in these things just to see how they were interacting and whatnot. I found some of the photos. There was a, uh, There's a police shooting of a Clark Park gang member that's detailed in the book. And the day after, police went out to take pictures of the scene where the shooting happened. I found those photos, some 44 years old, within the police archives, the photo- photography archives, and they're printed in the book for the first time as well. How much for a Fonsi picture? Well, those are all free because the amazing thing with Fonsi photos, and Fonsi was the guy, uh, you know, he was on Gravel Street for many years and other, uh, other locations, where you'd walk down the street and he took pictures of everybody. And you could come by, you, you could come and get your picture. He would hand you a card and say, come get your Fonsi's photo. And you could go down to his, the, the, his, his outlet the next day and pick up your, uh, you know, your photographs uh, and whatnot. And it's, it's remarkable because those were just originals. He threw all the negatives away, thinking that there was no need to keep them. So these, these Fonsi photos now are actually very unique, um, those single prints that he did. Um, it would be a, and a, it caught some Clark Parkers playing hooky. Playing, playing hooky, yeah, yeah. Uh, Wayne Angelucci, Jerry Gavins, and Roger Daggett. Uh, there's a Fonzie photo of them when they were out, uh, uh, sort of arm in arm there, and that's that's one of the photos included in the book too. There are so many good photos, and we're speaking here to Aaron Shaman, author of The Last Gang in Town, out now. Exactly. There are, like, I should mention Christine Hardy's. She had a hunch. She had a hunch, right? Yes. Oh, the, at uh, the Vancouver Police Museum. Yeah, she was uh, She was great because uh, she said, I know you're working on this Clark Park thing. We've got some photos in our collection. I think they're your people, um, some of the people you're looking at. And she sent me the pictures. And uh, a number of people, you know, sort of being paraded for arrest. That are, Their pictures are being taken of, usually them next to an arresting officer. And I showed it to some of the Clark Park guys. Now, these photos are taken 40 years ago, so there are people when they're 20, 21, 22, and I'm interviewing them now when they're 60, 61, 62, 63, this, this kind of thing. And some of the people I was interviewing are some of the people in the photos. I just didn't recognize them because they look so so young then, they, you know. Uh, and uh, they were able to pick out what, what uh, who was in the photos and what that night happened, what, you know, the individual incident, which was a, a house party up at 59th and Fraser uh, where all hell broke loose. And the police showed up, as well as the gang squad, and carted everybody off. And uh, that the, the story and those photos and the night of that arrest are all detailed in the book. Had Mouse seen a picture of himself? He never had. And nor had he seen the... Uh, Bleeding Jerry the, pick? The, 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 the police surveillance uh, report uh, where it, the, an undercover officer who had come to his house uh, wrote that report and said that uh, 
that uh, Mouse Williamson was in possession of a 45 caliber uh, gun. And uh, he, he swears up and down to this day, he said, I never had anything like that. But, he, but the interesting thing was he, he said, that now makes sense seeing that all these years later because it was right around that time the police started treating me really differently. And uh, they would pick me up and off the street and uh, throw me in the back of a police car and say, so you think you're going to, you know, you're going to shoot an officer? And they didn't know what, he didn't know what they were talking about um, and whatnot. So it comes from that, uh, that report. Now, whether the officer in question, the undercover guy, was puffing up his report to make it sound better or maybe he was just going off wrong intel that he'd been told, who knows? And you uh, got that through a freedom of information request? I got some of that. I got some of the information through an FOI request with the Vancouver Police Department. Quite frankly, other stuff was provided to me anonymously uh, from, uh, in particular, that report, which isn't something that would normally see the light of day. Uh, that, was, uh, that was given to me from, from an anonymous source. The Clark Park gang, Clark Park, where exactly was that for people that don't know? Well, it's still there. It's up at 14th and Commercial, um, just up from uh, Commercial and Broadway. Uh, you probably, if you haven't been in the park yourself, you've probably driven past it. Uh, many times it takes up a, a very large area. It's a whole couple of city blocks, um, and it's one of uh, I, I think it's Vancouver's second oldest park, next to Stanley Park. Um, so it's uh, it's been in Vancouver many many years. Was there a clubhouse in the park? What if it rained? There was a clubhouse there uh, where they used to have some of the fieldhouse uh, gear, and I think uh, there was a some balls and bats and boxing gloves for the kids and whatnot. That's probably how they got so tough, but boxing one another all the time. And it burned down um, probably in the later 70s, uh, perhaps. So um, I couldn't find the exact date, but it's not there anymore. So, Were any girls in the Clark Park gang, and were there girl gangs? Well, that's an interesting question. There were, there were no girls in the gang, uh, quote-unquote, but, you know, they've it's not as though the gang had uh, official memberships or, or uh, they had to get, they got meetings where they sat down at a boardroom table and said, listen, you do this and we're going to handle that. And what's the word on this? And it was it was a very loose affiliation and people drifted in and out uh, and whatnot. And within that realm, there were certainly girls that sort of hung out with the guys, too, and could probably, you know, legitimately be called, you know, uh, associates and and, uh, and part of the gang themselves and in insofar as it was a really loose uh, a, a group of people you know it's not wasn't uh, it wasn't as though that they uh, you know passed out membership cards or anything like that so were there any girl gangs in Vancouver at all I think there were I think there were I think there that's that's uh, it, that subject has probably been written less about it's harder certainly harder to find um, that information if you look at the arrest reports or the newspaper headlines for instance they're around uh, where close to we are out here at UBC out by 10th and Alma, which is just down the road from us uh, here, there was a, a gang called the Alma Dukes that used to hang out in that part of town. They were a, a real uh, going concern in the same way that the uh, the Clark Park gang were, you know, in the, in the 70s. These, the, the, the Alma Dukes were around in the, in the 50s, and they uh, notoriously used to rumble with uh, another gang on the east side of town um, uh, called the Little Vic Gang or the Victoria Street Gang. And where the, so you have... You have the east end of Vancouver and the west side of Vancouver uh, fighting and whatnot. In those arrest reports and some of those newspaper headlines of uh, kids getting arrested in, with the Alma Dukes, they inevitably list a, a, a few girls as well. Now, whether these are the girlfriends of some of the gang members or some of the gang members, some of these girls were, for all intents and purposes, gang members themselves, we don't know, but uh, we just don't have that information. But it, uh, I'm sure there were. I'm sure there were. Were there exclusive girl gangs? 
Hard to say. I don't. I, I, but there were certainly associates and, and, and people that hung out. The Alma Dukes, an amazing name. The names were amazing, really amazing, like Catwalkers, the Renfrew Huns. Yeah. Did you get a hold of any Clark Park or Riley Park merchandise? Like, i.e., did they have leather jackets? Uh, when I say merchandise now, yeah. everything is merchandise. Oh, yeah. Ken Lum, who owns that East Van The East Van sign, symbol. yeah. What was the Clark Park merch? Well, he didn't really have merch. What would it be? Well, it's funny because uh, one of the gang members talks about at one point they were going to make jackets that, that said uh, Clark, you know, uh, Clark Park, SG, the SG for street gang, and make patches and other jackets. Now, the Dunbar Park gang, there's a there's a Facebook group, actually, of some of the old-timers that, that were made up part of that Dunbar gang. And right on the front page of that gang that you could, you know, the Dunbar Dunbar gang, you look it up, they've got a picture of a guy with the, that, on the back of his jacket that says Dunbar gang. You know, they they, they, they were they were probably just, a, uh, you know, a, a couple years away or just the next step up of, of, of merchandising some stuff, but... Uh, Nobody had labels or anything like that back then uh, uh, as well, but so they never got around to that. Uh, but uh, you can almost imagine them uh, labeling their red Mac jackets, but never never came to that, that, that point. What about the East Van sign? Yeah. Who owns that? Well, that's an interesting— Who owns that idea? Well, that's—you uh, know, there was a guy this—I uh, know there was a guy who uh, has an East Van clothing company out in East Van. He said that he and his friends made it. Um. But he he was trademarking it for his clothing line um, more than anything else. It, it seemed it, it didn't seem like a legitimate case that that he had done it because you talk to the Clark Parkers that were around and and these guys are twenty years older than this gentleman uh, with his clothing company. It, he, they talk about how that symbol was around before them, you know. So it's hard to say who originally created that East Van Cross that you know the letters down and then a cross with the um, where that Ken Lum sign is. So. You know, a lot of people say it had to do with sort of East Van pride. There are other people say that it had strictly had to do with the gangs. It's hard to say, it, and it, and it, and it's probably both people are right in, in a sense because maybe the gangs popularized it with some of the graffiti that they did at the time. And but. you are Aaron Chapman, author of The Last Gang in Town. The Last Gang in Town. Now, the Clark Parkers, they were kicked out of a Nimnoy TV special. Oh, that was at the uh, at the Variety Club Telethon. With, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. A variety uh, club telethon. Yeah, he was the host that year in 1971, and they went down there uh, to the uh, to the broadcast because you could go down there. It was a place to hang out uh, out of the cold, I guess. And they went and dropped acid, a few of them down there, and got into a fight with some Riley Parkers um, in, the, uh, in the studio audience that, that night. Now, a Chuck Berry, which she also liked, they climbed up on stage, resulting on getting them hit more. Yeah. Like they got like it was kind of a bad move, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a there was a concert in the uh, in November 1970 uh, pardon me, November 1971. Uh, a rock and roll revival featuring Chuck Berry. It was out of the uh, uh, it was out of the Coliseum. And that's one you wanted to play Red. Yeah, intro Red Robinson. I wish I had the ad uh, because Red Robinson did an, did an ad that he gave me, uh, a radio ad where it's him uh, doing the voiceover for it. I couldn't find it on my iPod. I, I, so my apologies there, but um, at that concert, which uh, <coughs> excuse me, also featured um, Bo Diddley and Bill Haley and the Comets. Well, after Bo Diddley, Bill Haley and the Comets and Chuck Berry never even took the stage because there was a riot that took place in the audience. And eventually, some gang members, Clark Park gang members, were there, got up on top of the stage. There were other people 
just random people who were drunk and out of control uh, that started smashing the gear and uh, just a rain of, of bottles that people had, had snuck in. You know, there was almost no constant security in the way we imagined it today. There were probably just some old grannies there for ushers who immediately fled when they realized that the, that the shit had hit the fan. And uh, uh, that, that story is detailed in the book, and, uh, and it's one of the sort of first well-known incidents. And I found some footage in the CBC archives uh, of that, which is uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, you can look at it as well. So. You freed the files. I freed the files. Freed the files. Had anybody else looked at that? Like, for instance, somebody can go to your right now and see your channel on YouTube. Yeah, there's a Last Gang in Town uh, a channel where you can see a trailer for the book and, and a couple of clips. And, and we'll put some, some more Stones stuff. rioting. Yeah, some some footage from uh, from that. Those are just right off the Steenbeck, uh, you know. So they're um, they're but just, they're low quality. But um, uh, there probably no one's looked at that in forty years, to be honest. Yeah. The Last Gang in Town. How did you have access to it? How did you find it? Uh, I have uh, friends at the uh, at the CBC archives, and uh, I, I asked them if I could uh, come down someday when they were when they were available, if they had some time for me, just to see what was there. Um, and uh, and and you know, a lot, a lot of the stations uh, do keep that stuff. Uh, and Global is another; uh, they have some amazing stuff in their video libraries as well. Has anyone done a history of police in Vancouver? This is kind of like the history of the police. It is in a way, yeah. I think you know, I, there's there's a book We're by. We're talking about gangs, but yeah, a lot a lot of the book is, is not just about the gangs. It's also about the the you know the what particularly about what policing was like in the early 1970s. A lot more wild west, way more low tech. You know, this was just after the call box era, where there would be there was no computers in the cars like there are today. If they had a walkie talkie, it was this big, huge, large thing they had to carry around with them. They sometimes had these call boxes where they were by a lamppost that were open up with a key and, you know, maybe there was a little Mickey of booze in there, uh, whatnot, and you would call into the station from there and put the phone back and lock it up again. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it seems like, you know, compared to our world today, a completely different era, which it was. But um, there's a book by Joe Swan uh, called 100 Years of Service that came out in 1986. And Joe was a uh, was a police officer. He's passed on now. But not as but much filth, though. Not as much filth. No, I mean, and, and he's written he's written it as a police officer, so he brings in whatever viewpoint is of an active police officer at that time. So it's a uh, it's uh, it's a very um, uh, you know pro police book as it should be. But it's 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 written from that angle. You know, it's uh, it, it, but the remarkable thing is the number of photos that are in that book too. It's out of print, but you can find it in most used bookstores. The last gang in town, and also. The last police station in town, right? Oh, yeah, up at Oak Ridge. There used to be a police station up there. I remember as a kid uh, because uh, my family lived in Oak Ridge for a couple of years there, and it was not far from where we lived, and it was a, a, sub, a little substation there they had. And it's uh, there's a condo development there now, uh, just like there's a condo development where Ocala Prison uh, used to be. There's just uh, That's what we do now. We just put condos everywhere. But, uh, uh, yeah, there was a... Uh, at that time, there was a, a police substation there, and that's a, that that place is featured in the book because uh, some of the uh, arrests eventually head that way. So, the book has been well received by the police and the Clark Park gang. What has been the reaction between the Clark Park gang and the police? Well, that's interesting. You know, like uh, you know, yeah, it's it's I've somehow managed to navigate uh, that that ice field, and and uh, but. From most people I've heard, it's the most of the police that I've uh, I've spoke to. I was I met with the uh, chief constable Adam Palmer actually in his office not long ago, and, and 
uh, presented a, a, a book to him and talked to him about it and some of the research that went in. And, and he was a, he's a he's a fan of uh, of police history as as man and probably his position any, would be anyway. But um, it could have uh, the cops come down to the Biltmore to re- oh there were I think there were there were a couple there yeah you know um, it was mostly it was mostly gang members that night a lot of the, some of the police that are in the book live in other parts of the province or. They were out of town, actually. A few of them were on away on vacation, so they couldn't attend. But uh, some of them have have bought, you know, uh, copies themselves, or, or or many of their friends have. And, I, and there's a, a bunch of police that uh, I've spoken to who are younger guys on the force now that are very interested to find out about that era because it's kind of a mythical era that was referred to, and and ever and, and guys who are aware of the police history in the 1970s know of that time. But what really happened and what actually went down. Uh, is probably uh, you know published here for the first time. So, Danny's thesis picture as a fifteen-year-old, that was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, Tees was. Explain about that. Yeah, Tees was a uh, was involved in a, in a in a police shooting. He was uh, one of the one of the Clark Park gang members who had left the Biltmore that night, uh, and they were in a stolen car. And when the police uh, seized on the stolen car, they fled the vehicle, and then in, in the process of fleeing. Matisse, who was a 17-year-old youth at the time, uh, was involved in an altercation. As he was trying to get over a wall, um, the police officer grabbed him. They struggled for a bit. The officer had his his gun out, um, and the gun went off, and Matisse was was, uh, shot and killed. It was a very very well-publicized incident when it happened uh, 44 years ago in November 1972. But uh, almost everyone has sort of forgot about it today. Um, I interviewed the officer who was involved in the shooting, a uh, re- retired constable by the name of Brian Honeyborn, who went on to a very – he was 25, I think, 24, 25 the incident happened. He spent 30 years with the Vancouver Police Department, very successfully, I might add. Um, and uh, it was the first time that he had ever spoken publicly uh, about that incident. But the interesting thing was when, when that when – when it happened, no, none of the press had a – couldn't get in touch with anybody to get a sort of a current photo of, uh, of Tease. So they got the last photo of what it was in a school book because uh, he hadn't been to school, I think, in a couple of years, which is when he was 15. He, he, looks, he was a young-looking guy at 17. He even looks younger than at 15. So when the public first saw the one picture they identified with Tease and saw this little boy, it really uh, you know, fostered that the police had done something wrong. You know, There was a lot of bad reporting about that incident at the time, particularly by the Georgia Strait and another paper called The, called the Grape who uh, made some very strong insinuations that the officer had drawn a line and followed him with his gun and, and pulled the trigger, and that hadn't been the case. Uh, it was just a and – I, and I go through all the court testimony and the witnesses and, and open up that case for, you know, for the first time probably in 40 years to have a, a decent look at it. And uh, I contest in the book that it was just a, a very terrible accident, and I don't think it was a, a – a, a, uh, a targeted or uh, it was done on purpose. There are a lot of people in the East End, even today, who still feel that it was, uh, who were around that era. But I, uh, I present the evidence, I present the witnesses, and I let the reader, I think, decide for themselves. And, and I explain what the, the, the series of events that, that happened to it. Uh, perhaps that was going to happen at any time. In a way, those guys were leading, you know, the police were leading, uh, were going after uh, the, the gangs aggressively. But even more so because these guys had stolen a car and were involved in a, in a, a you know, a, a crime um, that was happening on a nightly, daily basis. Um, this could have, it could have been any one of them that might have been shot that night. It just wasn't, uh, it just it was sad that it happened at all, but but sad that it happened to Tease, who was a, 
wasn't one of the main players of, of the gang in a way. So. Was it hard to get Brian Honeyborn to talk? Well, I, uh, he was no, in a way, because he was uh, yes and no, I should say, because he was very uh, candid. Uh, he was very respectful of, uh, you know, uh, he was very honest. Um, you could, he, he told me that no question was uh, off limits. He, I could ask whatever he wanted. I think because he, would familiar, he was familiar with, uh, with the Commodore book and the Penthouse nightclub book, uh, and understanding that I was approaching this not as a newspaper reporter or looking to get a seize on something or to make somebody, you know, sometimes the the, the police are very suspicious of the media. Um, and I was speaking to him not as somebody from a newspaper, but as a historian, trying to get the, you know, uh, the real story in context. Um, I know some of the other retired police department uh, constables who I had interviewed for other material and other stories and other books uh, put in a good word for me and said, Aaron is a respectful guy. You can talk to him and, and he'll treat you fairly and he'll treat the story fairly. And, and as I say, he, he, when he read the book, he, he thought it was very fair. Um, most of the gang members, uh, you know, I, I have all said who have read it, uh, have all think it's fair, the ones that I've heard back from so far anyway. Um, and, and even I've heard, you know, there are some, uh, some uh, older Hells Angels who, uh, from that period who knew some of the players and were friends of some of these people or grew up with some of these guys. Who uh, who thought it was uh, who thought it was a interesting and a, and a very fair book as well, which I'm very surprised uh, to to hear. But uh, I, I think because I simply told the story honestly and I presented the facts and I tr- I don't tip my hand one way or the other to suggest the reader should should believe one side or another. Just I think they can figure it out for themselves like, what happened and uh, not only with the tea shooting but the whole era. What about the Sean Penn fight? I'm huge. Was that the I'm huge? I'm huge fight. <laughs> no, that was the, that was different. That was the uh, that was the Christian Slater uh, I'm huge thing in uh, in Hollywood in 1995 with us and the Real McKenzies when Tony and I from the Real McKenzies got into a uh, a punch up with uh, with with Christian Slater and his friends. But oh, uh, the, well, the Sean Penn. Well, Sean Penn was uh, was in town in Vancouver in the uh, early 90s, and. Uh, Penn and a, a, a local fella by the name of Ray Gennetti uh, got into some fight at a bar. Gennetti shot out of his mouth or something like that, or maybe Penn did, and, and Gennetti didn't like it. But uh, got into some uh, a very well-publicized uh, thing at the time, a very uh, some, some, some punch-up at some Vancouver bar. I can't remember which one. I think it's great, and you are Aaron Chaman winding up here with Aaron Chaman, author of Last Gang in Town. I think it's great, Aaron, that you own the grape, like, or you own a couple of things. It actually says courtesy the author in the actual book. Oh, uh, yeah, so that, those are those would have been pieces that I've searched out or, or uh, collected or the Clark or... Park Freedom Rally. Poster. Yes, yeah, that, that I, I that. That's that is 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 mine and in my collection. But I should say that was given to me by Paul Stanton. Uh, he had it on file. He, he had kept it in an envelope uh, all these years. So when I interviewed him, he happened to mention, uh, you know, when I was interviewing him about that uh, the Clark Park Freedom Rally, which happened in July 1972, which was a rally to protest uh, some of the police uh, uh, activity that was going on in the East End at the time. Uh, one of the few times that this story. Started to bubble to the surface of the news. It never, the, the whole story never came out because most of the people in East Vancouver that were complaining about police, police brutality, that were part of the gang and their families actually, um, presumed that it was police uh, after hours on their own time going out in vigilante style. No one knew this was actually a sanctioned thing, not only from the Vancouver Police Department, but as high up as the Attorney General of BC, who sanctioned that 
you guys go do this, get it done, and if there's any complaints, we'll protect you. They could only operate that. I mean, you could only do this. Isn't the kind of thing that the police could do now. They're, they're, a, there's too many cell phone cameras around. But also, this is before the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and that's a there's a that's a big difference in in, in policing. You know, when that finally came in in the early '80s, '82, uh, you know that that changed the, some of the mechanics of what how uh, police oversight works. So they could never get away with this thing today. But that's what they did back then. It was a much more sort of Wild West uh, time in in Vancouver that way. So, so the police kept the poster. The police kept the poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he hadn't been to it himself, uh, but he kept it as a, I guess as a souvenir amongst his files uh, and whatnot. So uh, it was interesting that uh, that he would have kept it. So winding up here, yes, sir. with Aaron Chapman, author of the Last Gang in Town, the Last Gang in Town. I wanted to ask you about Squire Barnes. Yeah, what did Squire help with the book? Squire, uh, I, I met uh, when I was working on the Commodore book, and um, he found out that I was doing this, the research on that. We had, uh, we had met before. I can't remember originally how we met, but there was a couple things that I had written uh, that he came into contact with, and I helped him on a, sort of behind the scenes, sort of connect him when he was doing a story on uh, something that related to local music in Vancouver. And we just got to know one another. But uh, the nice thing with, with uh, Squire, when I did that Commodore book, he did a feature on the evening news about the history of the Commodore, where I spoke and talked about the room, and we went down there and filmed a few things and looked at some old posters and this and that. It was on the evening news, and uh, so many people saw it. It was like a great sort of fishing line to put out because at the end of the feature, he said, uh, you know, my friend Aaron's doing this book on the Commodore. If you have a story, you know, contact him about it. And I, I had a I had a flood of, uh, of people contact me the next day and, you know, the, the couple of days after, there were the people who had seen that that clip. So Squire's been helpful with some of the uh, some of the writing and, and some of the behind the scenes uh, stuff. And he's he's a good guy. He's a good cat. I like him a lot. Hoodlums munch on Captain Crunch. Yeah, <laughs> that was a headline. Right? That was a headline too. The the, the Clark Parkers uh, broke into one of the uh, train stockyards, um, and uh, they were looking for TV sets or something they could fence, I suppose. And they found a bunch of uh, boxes of Captain Crunch cereal, and uh, I guess maybe you know, they thought, "Ah, well, we struck out here." And they might have they might have taken off. Maybe a couple a couple of them grabbed the box or two, or reached in and grabbed a handful. But the next day in the in the uh, in the province newspaper, I think it was, uh, there was a headline that read uh, "Hoodlums Munch" on on Captain Crunch in the in the, uh, in the paper. So everybody got a laugh out of that. Uh, the, the Clark Park gang also returned lawnmowers. They returned. They were turned See, stuff they, they stole. Yeah, they they could be good guys, you know, like perhaps if properly motivated uh, the right way. There's a story in the book with uh, a fellow by the name of Mac Ryan and, and his and him and some buddies uh, from the gang that uh, they had uh, stolen a bunch of landscaping equipment and uh, they had thrown it in the back of a car and were driving away with it. And a, a uh, Vancouver police car uh, constable pulled them over and said, uh, you know, and recognized them all, and said, uh, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, no, we're working. Uh, we got a job. Uh, we've got a job landscaping, and we're, we're just taking the equipment uh, to the job site so we can start early first thing tomorrow. And I guess the police officer knew better and said, uh, you know, guys, if I find out that, you know, I get a call tomorrow and see that a bunch of lawnmowers have been stolen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to all your guys' houses. And uh, they said, you know, no, God, officer, what are you saying? We're, we're honest working uh, kids now and whatnot. And as soon as the officer left, they'd realized they'd been uh, they'd been caught. So they they drove back to the, whatever they had stolen it from and put it all back as as quietly as they could. 
And you are... Aaron Chapman. Author of... The Last Gang in Town. Which people can get where? You can get it. It's available across Canada. It's in... Uh, or certain, USA. Or uh, Not USA yet. Next year, I think, it'll be uh, USA. But uh, it's Canadian available... websites. It's, you can get it direct from uh, Arsenal Pulp Press or online on Amazon. Uh, but I tell people to go to a bookstore. Just like, you know, people go to a record store, you should go to a bookstore. Get it from the people that are there supporting books, supporting music. Uh, you know, website sources are, are, are f- fair enough, but, you know, if you go down to Book Warehouse or the Paper Hound or the People's Co-op Bookstore or any of these small mom-and-pop bookstores, they'll have it. Go to Chapters as well. They have it too. That's okay. But if you can go down and help the little guy who's, uh, you know, running a bookstore, uh, all, all the better. So We have one last question from Twitter, and it comes from Ad Ludas. What was the last book the Clark Parkers purchased? The last oh I I imagine it's the last gang in town or whatever, you sold out. Oh oh I mean uh, the, the record release. Oh the, uh, the book release. Uh, oh the book, the book yeah that's the that's probably the I mean uh, individually maybe they've bought some books uh, since then I, or uh, I know Bradley Bennett's uh, a, a fan of Superman comics he might have bought a, a Superman comic as well but uh, uh, I guess I guess the last gang in town is might be the, maybe the last book uh, some of these guys have bought. Uh, and right now, Aaron Chapman, we're going to end with some music that you did. Oh, arsenic and old lace. What can or you tell? Arsenic, arsenic and old signs. Yeah, <laughs> old lace. What can you tell the people about that tune? Well, a lot of people know the uh, the Bomac sign that is covered up by a Toys R Us uh, sign uh, these days, and uh, that's down on Broadway. But in 1965, um, a Radio disc jockey by the name of uh, Rene Castellani got up on top of the sign as part of uh, a promotion with Bomac, the car dealership that was that used to be there, and he was going to stay up there until all the cars were sold in the lot. But little did people know that he was sneaking down at night and going home and poisoning his wife. And his alibi the whole time was that he was up in the sign. He couldn't have got away to do all this. Well, his wife died, and there was a there was a the coroner believed that something's not right here. This is this this woman's been poisoning by arsenic, and tip and said the told the police they better investigate. Well, Castellani was uh, arrested, and uh, I mean the story's in the song, I suppose uh, that we can play. By by Aaron Chapman by, by me. Aaron Chapman and also 604-822-2487, 604-822-CITR, 604-UBC-CITR. If you want to win a free copy. A free copy of the book. A free copy of The Last Gang in Town by. By me, Aaron Chapman. By I'll, I'll Aaron even Chapman. sign it for them. 604-822-2487, 604 604- 822-C-I-T-R. So here we go with your tune, yeah. Aaron. A little spoken word, a little sort of uh, 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 Steve Allen and uh, Jack Kerouac type uh, music and, and reading here. Why should people care about the last gang in town? Well, the same reason I, I say that people should care about all Vancouver history. You know, that we're in this interesting time right now where we're, we're, we're taking a new look at what's happened in the city. Everybody says that Vancouver's changed a lot since, since you know, 1986. Expo 86 was a big difference. But some of the things that were already in place that made Expo 86 happen were starting, you know, in the earlier 70s. Um, Vancouver has, people say that Vancouver, because it's a young city, has, there's no history here. I, I completely disagree with that. There's the most fascinating history here, but it's just happened in all sort of a very short period of time. So it's 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 very interesting to look back because some of the stuff happens within our own lifetimes or just on the just outside of it. But 
inevitably some of these people are still around so you can you can talk to them you're not you're not necessarily always dealing with with people who are uh, who have passed on you can you can immediately find these people to uh, to interview them and talk about uh, some of Vancouver's near history which were just lost you know because there are so many of the old buildings in the neighborhoods that have changed now's the time that we should be looking at it now's the time we should be pre- preserving these buildings and thinking about uh, history and and, uh, and how we need to uh, to preserve it and record it and now's the time we should be reading Arsenic and Old Signs. Well, The Last Gang in oh, Town. Oh, and, and, and The Last Gang in Town, but we're, we're going to play Arsenic and Old Signs now. Well, thank you, A.O. Chaman, and do-do-loot-do. Do-do. Vancouver Broadway, 1965. The summer heat slittered and crept and the asphalt was breaking a fever of 102. Coupe de Villes and Buicks are swimming up and down the dark street at night, floating like manta rays under the warm amber of a traffic light. There's a playbill down at the cave for Mitzi Gaynor coming soon. Man, that gal has legs from here to who hid the broom. Out on Kingsway, a street cleaner's mopping up the street. While inside the NB Steakhouse, somebody's mopping up the gravy from their plate with a slice of Wonder Bread so white you could clean a piano with it. Others are at home falling asleep, bathed in the warm light of their Indian Chief TV test pattern, asleep in the glow of their Curtis Mathis or Zenith Electra homes. Broadway's lit too, Broadway's bathed in red and blue. Ruby and sapphire neon tubes glowing ten stories high from the Bomax sign. Glowing, buzzing, and flickering at a 60-cycle hum. Standing tall at the front of the Bomac car lot every night. Pouring neon light down the street and reflecting off all the chrome in the lot. And maybe the old neon sign sizzled just a little more in that 1965 summer. Castellani was his name, Rene Castellani. A radio man from CKNW got on top of the sign bound to stay on top until all the cars have been sold for the lot. <laughs> Folks, I'm going to stay up here until Bomax sells every car it's got. So get down here and get me off this sign. Come down and see a new Fleetwood Eldorado hardtop. Four white feet, music and heat, wheel skirts and opera lights, with a comfort tilt steering wheel with a walnut trim, and a V8 engine that purrs like a hymn. You can drive one off the lot today. Come down to Bomax on Broadway. And you could drive down Broadway and see Castellani that summer, making friends with the seagulls, and tune in AM 98 and listen to Old Renee with traffic and news on the hour. And all the while, the old neon sign would stare down the street, and every car there, each two tons of iron made back when Detroit used to care. And not even the two-piece suit car salesmen in the lot with their ingledews that shine like mirrors knew that in the dark of the night, Castellani would climb down from the top and sneak away for an hour or two. Nobody except the boys back at the radio station he'd innocently phone to ask if they'd fill in and play a record at the top of the hour and cover his ass. When he'd sneak away, he'd drive home and he'd find his plump wife Esther with her hair and rollers, chain-smoking Winstons, eating bonbons in bed. Where you been? But on other nights, his friends noticed the company car outside the house of Miss Miller. 
the station's strawberry blonde switchboard operator. And as he sat there day and night on top of the BOMAC sign in between playing commercials for Honest Nat's department store, Woodward's $1.49 day, as he daydreamed out in the horizon, maybe it's easy to imagine the choice in his mind. Suburbs, his wife, leftovers, and a marriage he knew the honeymoon was over. Or over in Miss Miller's around nine, with a smile on her face and a bottle of wine. So he started to sneak down from the sign each night and bring home to Esther a milkshake, her favorite treat. But she never bothered to ask why her Renee was being so sweet. And slowly Esther started to get sick, but never suspected her doting husband of any trick. And the lonely late-night coffee patrons of the night and day diner would never notice him. And they would never notice his halfway grin, reflecting off the arborite counter as he came in to get another milkshake to go. Esther got sick. Esther got worse and worse. Until one day they called in a hearse. And that night Esther died. One of the boys from the radio station came by to make sure Renee was okay. But Renee wasn't in tears. No, he had his feet up on the couch having a beer. For the Stouffer's TV turkey dinner. Laughing at some comic on the Ed Sullivan show. Now Esther might have died without another word. Some said Renee didn't seem to grieve, and others just said he never wore his heart on his sleeve. And the neighbors began to talk over fences and coffee shops, and the coroner's hunches went to suspicions, and suspicions drew to questions. 